Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I'm speaking with Ian Ayres and Fred Vaz about their latest book, Weapon of Choice, Fighting Gun Violence While Respecting Gun Rights, published by Harvard University Press earlier this year. Now, just before we get started, I'm going to introduce our guests. Firstly, our guest Ian Ayres is a lawyer and economist. He's Deputy Dean and the William K. Townsend Professor at Yale Law School and Professor at Yale School of Management. Professor Ayres has been a columnist for Forbes magazine, a commentator on Public Radio's Marketplace, and a contributor to the New York Times Freakonomics blog. His research has been featured on Primetime Live, Oprah, and Good Morning America, and in Time and Vogue magazines. Ian is a co-founder of Stick.com, a website that helps you stick to your goals. In an Illinois post-conviction proceeding, Ian has helped convince a court to vacate his client's death sentence. He's the author of many books, including the New York Times bestseller, Super Crunches. Today we're speaking about weapon of choice, fighting gun violence while respecting gun rights, and it's his 12th book. His co-author is Fred Vaz. Professor Vaz is the Ira Drayton Pruitt Senior Professor of Law at the University of Alabama, which he joined in the summer of 2008 after practicing law for six years at Miller, Shackman and Beam LLP in Chicago. His practice includes all phases of civil litigation with an emphasis on legal malpractice. Fred Vaz teaches property, descendants, estates and mental health law. His research interests include a mental health and empirical analysis of law. He's a former law clerk to Judge Bruce M. Saylor on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit and Judge Joan B. Gottschall on the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. Professor Vaz also served as a fellow in the Center for the Study of Corporate Law at Yale Law School. He works with numerous suicide prevention organizations and is a member of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Gun Violence. Ian and Fred, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thank you very much. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me how you came to write Weapon of Choice, Fighting Gun Violence While Respecting Gun Rights? Um, Perhaps, Fred, you could introduce how you came to write the book. Thank you. Happy to do so. Um, So this, uh, the basic idea of the book is actually derived from my um, personal experiences. Um, I have bipolar disorder um, and have been at points in my life um, suicidal. Um, And during periods in which I feel well, I want to try to protect myself against um, kind of dark moments and, and bad decisions. Um, so that's what, kind of the core idea of the book is to allow people um, who may fear uh, suicide to take the step of protecting themselves and making it impossible to purchase a gun um, during a moment of crisis. Yeah, and that was really moving reading about that um, in the preface of the book. It was really a profound um, and moving opening. So I I really enjoyed that and I was really grateful that you did share your experience. Now, perhaps, Ian, you can talk a little bit more about this problem of gun violence in the US, perhaps with reference to um, suicide. Sure. The, uh, the most important uh, statistic with regard to gun violence is that nearly two out of every three gun deaths is a gun suicide. And, uh, and there are many types of gun control that aren't particularly well tailored to, uh, to helping on this humongous problem. Uh, 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 we, 
uh, uh, we lose uh, uh, more than 50 people a day to gun suicide. Uh, it's, it's basically a, a, like a, a Las Vegas mass shooting every day uh, in this silent uh, epidemic of, of suicide. And so this central idea of the book that we can make progress on gun suicide by empowering individuals to waive their gun rights uh, temporarily uh, is, uh, is uh, just a way to, that we can, instead of restricting choice, we can give people a new option to, uh, uh, to help protect themselves. And I found that really interesting. One of the key themes that comes through in the book is that you propose a number of interventions which you call choice enhancing. Can you explain a little bit more about this model of gun control? For example, how it's decentralized and how it actually expands individuals' freedom. Sure, if I could, one, one simple example of this that's really uh, dramatically put, been put into focus this last summer is uh, that we can do a better job uh, protecting people's rights to peaceful assembly. It's, uh, 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 and, and a way to do that, to expand choice, is to let people, when they apply for a, a permit to have a demonstration, to check a box to say whether they would like to have that demonstration be gun-free or not. Uh, uh, even in states that have open carry, uh, it might be a better way to accommodate different constitutional rights to let people who want to have a gun-free demonstration temporarily have a park that would be gun-free while they are deciding, where that group is deciding to meet. And I would just add to that idea a little bit, Ian, that um, the idea, you know, obviously there were tragic instances where people have lost lives when kind of armed counter protesters show up at a peaceful uh, demonstration, Black Lives Matter or other um, groups. And we wouldn't be saying, look, you can never have a firearm at a demonstration. But if it's not your demonstration and they've elected this gun-free option, well, then you can't bring guns to try to intimidate um, people on the other side. And we've, again, we've seen the tragic consequences. That was really interesting. And you give a practical example where this has actually happened and where it has actually worked and been legislated about. So perhaps, Fred, you can tell us more about Donna's Law, um, how it works and, you know, how this sort of opt-in system is effective? Sure. Well, Donna's Law is the idea, the kind of core idea we talked about uh, just a minute ago. Um, and what it does is it allows an individual to put their own name into the uh, federal background check system so that they would be unable to purchase a firearm uh, from a gun dealer. Um, and there's an option under Donna's Law, if you, if you want to change your mind, you can make a request and have your name removed from the database um, automatically, no questions asked, but there'd be a delay period. Um, 21 days is the, the version that passed in Virginia. Um, and the idea is really, you know, so many suicides are impulsive and the research demonstrates just having a delay period and, and slowing down acquisition of the most lethal means commonly used to attempt suicide can save lives. And it, it saves lives. It doesn't just, you know, um, steer people to another suicide method. Um, it really is so impulsive and people have one idea in mind 
um, that if you take that idea away from them, you take away the gun, uh, you can really save lives. And I found it really interesting. You gave some examples about across different states, different variations of Donna's law have been introduced. Um, Can you expand a little upon this, especially in relation for people with mental health concerns, perhaps those with symptoms and those with diagnosis? Absolutely. And I should probably back up and explain why it's called Donna's Law. Um, Donna Nathan was a woman in uh, New Orleans who had been struggling with bipolar disorder, depression, suicidal thinking. She had voluntarily admitted herself to psychiatric hospitals several times in the months leading up to her to her death. Um, she was released from hospital, and because it's still legal uh, to buy a gun unless you've been involuntarily hospitalized, um, she went out, uh, purchased a gun, and used it the same day to to kill herself. Um, her Donna, her her daughter Katrina Breeze has been a real advocate. Um, and in terms of you know the different states, so Louisiana is a state where the bill was introduced, um, and that's you know why we call it Donna's Law after after Donna Donna Nathan. Um, but in terms of the variations, I mean there are a few kind of key variables. You know, you want it to be easy for people to sign up, but you also want to make absolutely sure it's the individual signing themselves up and not, you know, someone doing it, um, you know, and as part of a messy divorce or, you know, for some other to harass a, a, a lawful gun owner. Um, and so that's one variable. And we've been working hard to get it, again, as, as secure a system as possible, but also one that um, people will be able to take advantage of easily. Um, and Yeah, I, so I did find it um, very interesting. I mean, there are some arguments against Donna's Law. Can you explain these a little bit? And would you refute any of these? Sure. I mean, we had in, so I I mentioned Virginia, the other state that has enacted Donna's law is Washington state. Um, And there, uh, the NRA objected uh, on a couple grounds. One, um, they objected to the delay period. Um, They they thought, uh, you know, there might be some emergency need for an individual to get a gun, say domestic violence or moving into a dangerous neighborhood and and so forth. Um, So that was something that we really couldn't um, uh, compromise on because the whole purpose of the the law is to slow down that gun purchase. Um, And so the real argument against um, the the sort of strong gun rights position is uh, it's voluntary. Um, it really is expanding choices for people. Um, if you're a gun owner and you want no part of it, don't sign up. Um, and so that's that's one, uh, I think, the biggest argument um, against Donna's Law and the biggest argument uh, to refute it really is the idea that, look, it's not restricting anyone's choices. It's giving people a new option. So it really is a libertarian argument, um, which does come through in the book. Um, and you've touched, you did touch on this before, but can you expand a little on how exactly you, you would argue that Donna's law would save lives? Oh, absolutely. So, um, we've done, uh, survey research looking at, um, asking people, you know, if Donna's law were available, would you sign up? And in one sample of, of 
psychiatric patients, we saw 46% say they would sign up. So if you consider how many people have psychiatric problems and, and sort of mental illness, um, this is tens of thousands of people who want this option to protect themselves. So that's the one kind of critical piece of data that demonstrates that Donna's law would save lives. The other one I alluded to before, I think, is the research on waiting periods. Um, so many states now have either an explicit waiting period to purchase a gun. So if you go into a gun store and want to buy a gun, you have to wait and come back two days later, five days later in order to pick up the gun. Um, and so if you compare states with waiting periods like that to states that don't, where you can walk in and walk out of a gun, you know, same day, very quickly, um, you see lower suicide rates in states that have waiting periods. So that's a finding that has been made a, a couple times. And you just put that together with um, the, um, you know, the, the finding that lots of people would sign up for Donna's Law. They're essentially opting in to have a kind of personal waiting period to, to purchase a gun. So you put those two together, and this could save hundreds, maybe thousands of lives a year. It does seem like a, a really simple and voluntary solution, to, but would be a, so effective to a really complex problem. Um, one case example you sort of gave was in relation to veterans and its specific application to veterans. Can you just expand on this a little bit? Because I think it's really interesting. Yeah. So we were we didn't know um, whether veterans would be more or less likely to want to sign up and also to be more or less likely than other people to support it as a policy matter. So Ian and I did a, a survey, a nationally representative sample of veterans, and found many of them, I think it was around 20%, said they would want to sign up, and a majority said they supported it as a policy matter whether or not they personally wanted to sign up. And veterans are an important group um, in this country, because their suicide rate is, you know, really elevated. There are something like 20 veterans a day die by suicide. Um, so if you can get veterans on board um, to restrict their own gun rights, um, you could make a real, a real difference. Um, and just in terms of understanding exactly how this would work, I want to turn back to some analogies. Um, Ian mentioned before you know, at Black Lives Matter protests and other uh, protest movements, people were able to opt in um, to and, you know, give up their gun rights for that particular time. So I'm wondering, Ian, if you can talk a little bit about some analogies um, that you give in the book and how this bottom-up approach and opt-in laws might work. Sure. Well, one, one analogy is to... Uh, uh, Ulysses and the Sirens. This is a kind of a hand tying uh, uh, solution or a pre-commitment device uh, that um, has been used successfully in other areas. Uh, several states have uh, registries where people with gambling problems can opt out, can give up their rights to gamble at casinos. And, uh, and there's been some great success in, again, uh, helping people. No one has to give up their right to gamble, but those that uh, that have a problem have, uh, can can take uh, can take action to uh, 
uh, stop their future selves from doing something that will harm them. And that makes perfect sense. So I, I guess in this context, so the million dollar question is, what about the Second Amendment? Would Donna's Law and these and do these analogous um, sort of cases, do they violate the Second Amendment and the rights and freedoms in that? So we don't think so. Um, and again, it's the fundamental reason uh, that these are voluntary uh, measures. Certainly Donna's law, um, again, you know, constitutional rights can be waived. Uh, almost every constitutional right can be waived. So, you know, you plead guilty instead of insisting on your right to a jury. Um, you know, and the Second Amendment does not mandate anyone own a gun. Um, and, and when someone decides uh, and chooses not to own a gun, um, that doesn't infringe on anyone else's Second Amendment rights. It's a, you know, it's self-restriction. So that's the, the fundamental response on the Second Amendment. But I think, Ian, you had something you wanted to say. Well, and it's, it's not only uh, uh, constitutional, but it's uh, the fact that it's uh, a libertarian idea has made it uh, politically much more palatable to a, a wide range uh, of people. And so uh, uh, since we published the book, we just uh, are happy uh, that New York uh, introduced a version of Donna's Law, but it's also been introduced in Alabama and Louisiana and Tennessee. It's, it's not just uh, blue states, but uh, uh, Trump-supporting red states uh, uh, can understand how this can help them. Uh, uh, take action against gun violence. And I think that leads into the next part of your book in relation to you, you, uh, you title your chapter Laboratories of Democracy. So it's, you know, sort of this idea of how it works across different states. Can you explain a little what you mean by laboratories of democracy? Sure. The uh, phrase comes from Justice Brandeis, uh, who uh, who uh, helped us understand that one part of the genius of our uh, federal system is that uh, the states can uh, experiment with different kinds of policies and collectively we can learn which kinds of laws work better uh, than other kinds of laws. And, and so we've been able to, uh, in seeing now 12 different versions of uh, Donna's Law being introduced, uh, we've been able to see how different states uh, have tackled the question about how to securely allow people to sign up and how some states have said people can um, uh, can uh, deregister, can rescind their, uh, uh, their choice by uh, just waiting for 21 days. Uh, some, some bills say that you need to go to a judge and uh, proved by uh, a preponderance of the evidence that you're uh, not a risk to yourself or others. Some states have say that you uh, just uh, you need to get a note from a psychiatrist to, to say that you're not a risk. Yeah, and I'd, I'd add to that too. It's not a, a random experiment. Um, so you know, each each iteration of Donna's law, I think, um, has has built on what's come before it. Um, and we've been involved with working with state legislators and sort of modifying model legislation. We've got a version in the appendix to the book 
um, but we're actively involved in 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 these states. And and so you see something like I mean the best example of how the laboratory of democracy is working well, I think, is in Washington State. Um, the sponsor there, uh, Jamie Pedersen, um, had the idea that when you're signing up, maybe you could uh, list email addresses of people. If you later change your mind and try to get your name out of the database, these uh, an email would be automatically be sent to your friends, family, whomever you designated. It wasn't required that you designate anybody. But if you said, you know what, I want somebody to check on me um, before I go out and buy a gun again, um, I'm going to put their name, their email down. Um, so that was just a, what we think is a great innovation um, and, and just shows that kind of creativity in, in different states um, can lead to a better result in more broadly. And it was uh, a lot of sort of creative solutions to these problems. Can you talk perhaps about some of the key takeaways across different states, you know, as what stood out uh, as working really well? Sure. Uh, so I, I like the fact that some states have suggested that information about this new option be available uh, at uh, suicide hotlines and at uh, 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 mental health uh, 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 places. Uh, and uh, Fred mentioned that this concern about uh, that somebody who registered might need to get off the registry because of a domestic violence concern. And, and so that's led to uh, the possibility of having a judicial bypass that you could apply to get off more quickly than three weeks uh, if you could show a judge that you needed to get your gun rights back more quickly. Mm, and that makes sense. So it's, you know, it's not a hard and fast rule forever, but it's there is some flexibility built into the process in order to make it actually effective and more palatable and just realistic as well, I think. Um, and, and just, but, you know, it's not all uh, experiments work well. One thing that was frustrating to us is the Massachusetts bill uh, had limited the people uh, who signed up to people who were willing to, they had to uh, uh, attest to the fact that they had uh, mental health uh, illness. And uh, uh, we uh, argued long and hard, uh, but unsuccessfully uh, with the sponsors to take out that limitation. There's, there's no reason why you uh, would have to label uh, the people who register as, as uh, having mental health illness. But, so we don't win them all. But overall, it's been a, uh, a great learning experience to see how the states have, have uh, uh, innovated. And I would just emphasize that in addition to, to the Massachusetts um, example, um, in, in every other state we've been involved in, um, and certainly this is true in Washington and Virginia that have enacted it, um, it is strictly confidential. Um, so you don't have to disclose a mental illness, but you also don't have to disclose you're on the list. And it's protected against uh, Freedom of Information Act requests. It's can't be introduced in court. I mean, it's as as confidential as we can make it. And I think that's really important um, for people, you know, who are considering signing up to know um, it's a personal, private decision. 
And in terms of getting it implemented in various states, I thought your stories about lobbying were and your lobbying strategies were very interesting. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what worked and what didn't? Because I think it's applicable perhaps not just for Donna's Law and comparative legislation, but also perhaps for other um, citizens' concerns. Yeah, so in terms of uh, what's been most effective, um, I guess there are probably two or maybe three big takeaways. Um, the first is is to find the right sponsor, and that's absolutely essential. Um, and we were lucky to have personal relationships with some state legislators, and that led to um, a kind of credibility and a kind of immediate um, oh, that maybe that's a good idea. Because if you're a state legislator, you get pitched, I think, a lot of ideas. And it's very hard to know which are, you know, really have some substance behind them and, and which are kind of pet projects of a particular constituent or, or what have you. So having personal relationships turned out to generate sponsors. And when we got sponsors, motivated sponsors. Um, and that was a key to success in both um, Virginia and, and Washington. Um, where we ran into some problems, I think this is kind of big takeaway number two, um, getting state legislatures to spend money um, on anything, I think, is a real challenge. Um, it's, it's not enough to have a good idea. You've got to really persuade them. It's going to be cost-benefit justified, and they can explain to someone else why their budget um, is being, um, you know, diminished. Um, and so the, the particular issue where this came up was trying to make it as easy as possible for people to sign up. Some states um, got estimates of the cost of maintaining a website for the purpose of registration um, that were pretty high. I mean, not high in terms of the number of lives you could save, but enough, I think, to provide some sticker shock. Um, and that was our experience in California, actually. Um, where it, it turned out that the price estimate um, was was just not um, not considered feasible. And it's it's interesting because um, what I liked about your book is not just the reform proposals, but it is so practical. So you do talk a lot about um, what works and the limitations, and then in doing so, you know, there's solutions as to how to overcome those limitations. So I found it really interesting. Just picking up on one of the points you mentioned earlier and related to this point of the website, you know, you've got this chapter about emails and the associational marketplace. And here you propose a really interesting idea that individuals can choose to waive their gun rights and they can communicate this choice to others via email. Now, can you just explain why this would be effective and, you know, what this would um, allow for? Sure. Well, the, the, we can think about two different ways the emails might be used. One, one is on the back end, which Fred mentioned. If, at the, if you try, if you sign up uh, and you give, for example, your psychiatrist's email, and then you later on uh, say, no, I, I want to get my gun rights back, uh, a back end uh, notification would, uh, the registry could send an email to the psychiatrist uh, and say, hey, uh, this person's trying to get uh, his gun rights back, and the psychiatrist would have three weeks to check in and see: Are you going hunting, or are you feeling suicidal? It could really help friends and family and healthcare workers 
uh, check in uh, to make sure somebody's safe before they get their gun rights back. Uh, but the other and more controversial uh, way to use uh, an email notification is at the time that somebody registers. And, um, and so it, it's this, an associational marketplace. Another way that we want to expand choice is to uh, people have uh, a, a, guarantee, a constitutional right to, uh, uh, to associate with people that they want to. Well, we can, we can strengthen those associational rights by making them more informed. And so you, uh, you might, uh, uh, Jane, have a right to, uh, to carry a gun, but I could say I don't want to have, have my kids over to your house for a play date. Uh, if you have guns. And uh, so I might say, I only want to let my kids associate over at you, uh, with you if uh, you can show me that you've registered uh, to give up your gun rights. And uh, now what one person's informed associations is another person's discrimination. And, and so we try to balance these concerns by having it just letting people who have a narrow, have plausible self-defense interests in uh, uh, being the people that can uh, can act on the basis uh, of such a registration. So uh, your neighbors, your, uh, your uh, a condo association uh, would be able to uh, say, look, you can't uh, become part of our residential community uh, unless we get an email showing that you uh, have uh, waived your gun rights. And so in this sense then, how would your model and this um, associational marketplace be more libertarian and enhance individual rights? Sure, because it, it is, uh, it's making the Second Amendment rights contend uh, in an associational marketplace with other people's associational preferences. And uh, this isn't to say... Uh, which will win, but you can say, uh, no, you will only associate with me if you can keep your gun rights. And I can say, no, I'll only associate with you if you give them up and something's gotta, got to give. Uh, it's uh, 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 trying to improve the quality of informed association doesn't mean that uh, you'll get your, all your preferences, but it just allows you uh, to have a better shot at, Another way to think about this is, is really just to level the evidentiary playing field. If, if I am a, uh, uh, a condo association and I want to instead demand that all residents have guns, that's pretty easy to verify. Just show me your gun and I know you have one. But it's harder right now to prove that, people, that you don't have a gun. And this is, this is making that easier so that if... Uh, if people have preferences for a gun-free zone, they can have uh, uh, they have a better shot of proving that. Yeah, and I think that's right. It's very difficult to prove something in the negative, and so this sort of um, this it gives possibility to that um, in relation to you know associational marketplaces. And, um, and if you Google it uh, uh, about. Uh, landlords and uh and uh guns deaths they're uh, it's it's dangerous as a landlord to try to collect 
uh, late rent from uh, tenants that are armed. Uh, and so a landlord has a pretty strong, uh, a plausible self-defense rationale for not wanting uh, uh, tenants uh, that are armed. So uh, uh, that would be a, a place where this associational marketplace uh, might uh, improve uh, the equilibrium. And so I guess then it's now a good time to talk about the self-defense limitation, uh, sorry, the self-defense discrimination limitation. Can you explain a little bit of how this works? Sure. Well, uh, uh, for example, we, uh, we're not, would, would not allow an employer to say, we, you can't work for me, uh, unless you give up your gun rights. Uh, even though people, people sometimes disgruntled employees, the, uh, the phrase going postal is about, uh, 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 disgruntled postal employees, uh, uh, sh shooting uh, at their pl uh, places of employment. But that's uh, in, in an abundance of caution. We just want to limit it to a, a small set of economic actors. We, the, the most controversial thing that we'd say is that uh, insurers that are insuring, insuring people's life and people's property, they might be able to say, no, we'll give you a better uh, insurance rate if you can prove to us that you don't, uh, that you're not armed. Uh, so not employers, uh, not economic actors, unless they have uh, their own life or their property uh, at stake. And so then do you see the limits on libertarian contracting in this context? Um, well, uh, so there are, the, the limits are that, that uh, that only economic actors that have a plausible self-defense interest are, are able to discriminate on the basis of, of registration. Uh, I, but let me say quickly, this is one of the, uh, this is the most controversial part of the book, uh, that trying to weigh associational rights with, with gun rights and, uh, it is a proposal that you, if you, uh, that is not necessary for uh, listeners to go along with. Our ten proposals are quite modular, and you can uh, uh, pick some uh, to support and not others. Uh, and that's they don't all depend, uh, rise or fall together. And I think that was really interesting, um, the way that it could practically apply in that sense. So I guess one sort of example where this plays out is in the section where you write about privatizing gun-free zones. Um, like, correct me if I'm wrong, please. But um, so can you describe the what privatized gun-free zones are and provide examples where this has worked? Sure. Uh, so uh, in my hometown of Kansas City, uh, there is a uh, an entertainment district just uh, next door called Westport. And uh, in uh, uh, 2017, they were having a, um, uh, a problem that there was uh, some gun violence that was, uh, the businesses uh, were really concerned because it was scaring off their customers. And it was a kind of, in, it's seemingly intractable problem because Missouri is a uh, open carry state 
And it's very clear that uh, citizens have a right to openly carry weapons on the uh, on public streets. And the innovation was that the uh, businesses convinced the uh, city council to sell the streets to the businesses. And once it became private property, uh, uh, the businesses were able to make those now private streets uh, gun-free zones. And they actually hired uh, uh, the, the same security company that provides security for Disney to set up some uh, 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 metal detectors at the end of this uh, ends of this two plot two block entertainment district, and they could uh, uh, stop people with guns from coming in uh, to this restaurant and bar area. And was it effective? Do you think at reducing gun violence? Uh, well, it's it seems to have been, and. Uh, and as, as important to the businesses, it brought back uh, a lot of their uh, consumer business. But the bigger idea uh, of this uh, part of the book is that we can do a better job uh, protecting property rights. And it's another way to see the libertarian approach uh, is that, uh, Jane, you have a right to bear arms, uh, but not on my property if I don't want you to. Uh, and so we, we can respect your right to bear arms up to the border of my property and, and give me better control over uh, who comes onto my property with guns. A lot of people that are listening would be surprised that if you have a, uh, if, if the dishwasher breaks in your house and you ask a repair person to come in and fix it, uh, uh, that person in every state can carry a concealed weapon into your home without your permission. It's just bizarre. Uh, uh, and you have to uh, affirmatively object uh, uh, to stop them from doing it. And a, a very simple thing we could do, which um, uh, has been done in other kinds of contexts, is we can just flip the presumption, uh, say, look, you can't come uh, into somebody else's home with a gun unless they give you explicit permission. Again, the gun owner can still have people with guns into the house. Just say that, uh, invite them to bring them in. Just, uh, we have the wrong presumption here. It's, it, uh, and so we can do a better job of protecting property rights uh, to help give people control over whether others bring guns into their home. And just um, extending on this, this idea of protecting property rights, another really interesting and perhaps also controversial idea was your suggestion as to building in gun prohibitions on the transfer of property. Um, this, I mean, it did seem to me to be quite radical. So can you expand a bit on how this would work? Well, I think I think you're referring to um, like using a covenant. Um, that mm, runs yes. Yeah, exactly. So there's nothing radical about um, having a covenant uh, affecting use. I mean, whole um, homeowners associations are built upon, you know, restrictive covenants about paint color on your house or how, you know, you got to keep your fence and your lawn mowed and um, you can't have any political signs in your yard. Um, so really the idea of using a covenant to affect, um, you know, 
whether or not guns can be present on uh, a particular piece of property. It, it you're right. It's an innovative use, I think, of a of a covenant. It's not unprecedented, and it's not, uh, I would argue, different than other sort of use restrictions um, that are routinely upheld. Um, so, but it, it's important to have a covenant or other. Uh, restriction that runs with the land if you actually want to have a gun-free um, condo association. If you don't have it in the covenants, um, the next person who buys won't be bound by any agreement the prior um, owners may have had. So using a covenant that runs with the land is really essential to maintain a gun-free community. And it's really interesting. Um that's one thing that kept coming through in the book is sort of innovative use of you know things that already exist and so I really appreciated that sort of creative um, approach in this libertarian bottom-up sort of way. I wanted to ask now Fred I want to talk to you about um, symptom based gun removal orders. Um, For example you write about how tying gun removal orders to symptoms as opposed to mental health diagnosis. And this would be a bit innovative, but can you explain this a bit? Sure, I can. And it actually um, shares the same um, or nearly the same backstory as Donna's Law. Um, I uh, mentioned I have bipolar disorder. I've also experienced um, psychosis and came out of that experience knowing um, access to a firearm uh, during such a period would be an incredibly bad and dangerous idea. Um, so but to step back to the symptom-based, what's, what's different and, and sort of innovative about it, um, the current gun laws uh, on mental health, when we were talking about Donna Nathan, her story, so she had been, involunt- uh, she had been voluntarily admitted to hospital. Um, if you are involuntarily admitted, which means you have a diagnosis and you've been found at that moment to be dangerous, you lose your right to have a gun. So it's basically diagnosis-based um, gun control. And, you know, as a person with bipolar disorder, there are periods when I'd be perfectly safe. Um, and there are other periods when I wouldn't be. Um, so to have the gun restriction actually tied to the symptoms that create the danger, as opposed to a stereotype about people with a mental illness are all dangerous, um, to me is is but first just better policy. It's it's targeting the right um, the right problem, and and two, it's uh, avoiding stigmatization of of people who who aren't dangerous, or at least aren't dangerous most of the time. Yeah, and I think what also came through in the book is you sort of argue um, that tying uh, gun removal to diagnosis creates a gap. So, for example, people who haven't been diagnosed may fall through those holes, um, but they may display symptoms and we're trying to reduce the stigma. Um, So can you talk a little bit how current restrictions do miss the mark? Perhaps expand on this. Yeah, no, I thought. Um, I mean, you made a great point <clears throat> right there. Uh, lots of people. I don't know exact percentage, but it, it maybe nearly half of people with mental illness are not receiving treatment um, and may not be diagnosed. Um, but uh, you know, a police officer who encounters them 
on the street and can see that they're obviously suffering from paranoid delusions um, ought to be empowered to you know go to a court and say, look, I, we see the di- we see not the diagnosis, we see the symptoms that are creating a real danger. Um, we want to take away their right to have a gun. We want to take away the guns they have, but we also want to make sure their name is in the background check system so they can't turn around and buy a gun, which is exactly what happened with uh, Aaron Alexis, uh, the Navy Yard shooter. So this was several years ago, but an individual who is experiencing uh, paranoid delusions encountered uh, police officers and they decided, they wrote up a report, decided it, it wasn't an immediate danger, and so they didn't um, civilly commit or involuntarily hospitalize uh, Mr. Alexis. He went just a few weeks later, um, bought legally purchased a shotgun, and then used it in a mass shooting at the Navy Yard um, in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and so that's a great example of somebody who um, didn't have a diagnosis, haven't, hadn't been involuntarily hospitalized, um, but presented a, a sort of obvious danger. Um, and the, the law should, should target that. Mm, and I think it also reduces this link between, or this presumption of dangerousness being linked to mental health necessarily on every occasion. Um, so can you just talk a little bit more about whether there's arguments against the symptom-based gun removal ideas? Yeah. So I think the, the most compelling argument is that there are a lot of people suffering from delusions and hallucinations, even paranoid delusions, um, that won't actually hurt anyone with a gun. Um, and so you know, a mass shooting is a really rare event. Um, it's horrible, um, but it is rare. And so what you're doing with a symptom-based approach, I actually think it's it's more narrowly tailored than, say, a diagnosis-based approach. But it's, it's arguably not as narrowly tailored as um, what are called red flag laws um, that already exist in about 20 um, jurisdictions um, <clears throat> that are teed directly on a discretionary judgment of dangerousness, and that's what leads to the removal of gun rights. Um, what we're really arguing for is expanding red flag laws to have a basically automatic disqualifier for people suffering from paranoid delusions or threatening hallucinations. And again, the big argument against is that in doing so, um, we're uh, taking gun rights away from a lot of people who wouldn't actually hurt themselves or hurt anyone else. Um, my response to that uh, criticism is to say, look, anybody suffering from psychosis and these particularly dangerous symptoms shouldn't have a gun. Um, and yes, it may be unlikely that they're going to hurt someone with it, but some of them will. And it's uh, a good idea to try to avoid that. Thank you. Um, and now, Ian, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about this idea of unlawful possession petitions. Um, you present this, it seems also very interesting and creative and a very effective idea at reducing gun deaths. So can you explain what unlawful petitions are and how they'd work and what do you see as the key impediments to the implementation? Uh, sure. The uh, a big problem uh, that uh, is that 
there are more than a million Americans uh, uh, currently uh, are in illegal possession of firearms. And um, uh, gun rights advocates often say we should uh, do a better job enforcing current restrictions uh, before we add on uh, new ones. Well, this um, unlawful possession uh, petition is a way of trying to do a better job of in enforcing existing uh, restrictions. Uh, uh, we sh uh, it may be easier for us politically to agree, well, can we at least try to disarm people who uh, are who Ill illegally possess firearms? And so the, uh, the simple idea is that uh, citizens who have knowledge about someone else who uh, uh, illegally uh, owns a firearm uh, would have an ability to come forward and uh, file a petition uh, for a gun removal order. Uh, and if the police then go and find uh, a gun, uh, they can remove it. And the person who has lost that gun could then contest that whether uh, and would have a chance to go to court and prove that they were in lawful possession of it. Um, and we've, we suggest also that we can, uh, we might combine this new uh, uh, choice, this new uh, uh, opportunity to file this with, by giving people a, 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 a small financial incentive. Uh, many people have heard of gun buyback programs, but there have been uh, more than a dozen cities that have had some success using gun bounty programs. And this is where you pay $500, $1,000 to someone who can come forward with evidence about someone else who is in illegal possession of a firearm uh, so that we can actually do a, a, a small financial incentives might really help us uh, vacuum up some of these uh, illegally possessed firearms. And just picking up on this point a little bit more, there are already gun registries um, who include on their list who can and can't purchase guns. Why aren't they working and how would your model improve this? Sure. One of the big reasons they're not working is that we're, we basically have an honor system uh, in many states uh, that if you... Uh, for example, if you're convicted of a felony, you no longer can lawfully possess a firearm. That's been a part of federal law for decades. Uh, but many states, if you are convicted of a state felony, uh, no one uh, comes by your house and uh, tries to collect your weapons. Uh, they instead, uh, the honor system is that the felon is supposed to voluntarily give up uh, uh, their weapons to the state. And this often doesn't uh, happen. Uh, uh, a chilling example of this last year, a, a woman went to the Lakeland police and, and said her uh, ex-husband, uh, 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 she was worried that her ex-husband was going to kill her with a, a weapon. And her ex-husband uh, couldn't uh, uh, legally possess a weapon because he was uh, in jail for having uh, attempted to uh, run her over with a car. And she had done everything she should have done. She got a protective order against the husband. Um, but
but she was worried that when he got out of jail, he was going to take his, uh, he had one of his guns and shoot her. And uh, the Lakeland police, they said, oh, there's nothing they could do. And she went over to his house and uh, took his guns and, and took them immediately to the Lakeland police. And they turned around and arrested her for armed burglary because when she left, she was armed. Uh, uh, and uh, we should do better by uh, 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 in context like this and, and let uh, the ex-wife uh, petition to have uh, uh, guns removed uh, from some uh, confiscated from her ex-husband who didn't have a right to have the guns in the first place. Yeah, it really is quite terrifying. Um, it, the outcomes are really surprising and shocking. Um, and I think this relates to the next part of the book in relation to you put this argument forward of incentivizing disclosure. So you write about how disclosure of unlawful weapons by others might be incentivized. So it might work in these kind of cases. So can you talk about the carrots and sticks that might work for individuals to put be put in place that would make this effective? Yeah, well, and uh, I mentioned this idea of gun bounties that we, uh, we've had Crime Stopper incentives in other contexts. Here, it's basically applying the Crime Stoppers reward system to uh, illegal guns. And uh, the cities that have done this, which include Tampa, Philadelphia, and uh, uh, a place where I lived for a year, uh, uh, Urbana, Illinois, they've had great success, not just in confiscating uh, illegally possessed firearms, but a kind of surprise for me is when they do these raids, they often come up with other contraband, including large amounts, they've confiscated large amounts of illegal drugs and cash so that the programs end up uh, more than paying for themselves. And that's really interesting. That So it's effective not just in terms of gun control and disarming people who possess weapons illegally, but also in relation to policing other crimes, which, you know, seems to have a positive net benefit. Can you then just talk about, um, in relation to institutions, what carrots and sticks might work in relation, in this sort of incentivizing disclosure scheme? Sure. Well, uh, you know, stepping back, the uh, one of our, our big uh, ideas is that government isn't always the best place to, to figure out who should uh, have and uh, who, sh- who shouldn't have weapons. Uh, sometimes it's the person themselves. That's why we have Donna's Law. Um, sometimes it's going to be uh, uh, the neighbors who might know that you... Uh, unlawfully uh, possess a, a gun, but sometimes it's going to be institutions. And uh, uh, that, uh, for example, uh, Fred and I both uh, teach at universities and they often have uh, uh, learned that one of their students is having a very hard time and is acting erratically. And uh, the institutions will sometimes ban students from campus, uh, but few universities at that moment go forward uh, to the police and, uh, and try to bring a, a red flag p- uh, petition uh, or notify the police. And so one of the places where uh, mild sticks might be used is that um, 
uh, schools, universities, major employers, uh, we might require that if they have information that someone is uh, under the symptom-based approach, uh, is showing signs of paranoid uh, delusions or threatening hallucinations, that they should have an obligation uh, of reporting that to the police or face uh, some fine. Yeah. And I mean, it seems to make sense. Um, You know, I'm not from the US. And so the idea of, you know, being on a university campus when someone's displaying erratic symptoms and they might be able to bring a gun is, I mean, it's terrifying. Um, So, you know, this all sort of does work together. Um, Just bringing, again, bringing these points together, do you both have any key recommendations for reducing gun violence? I know that's a big question, but just, yeah, drawing the points of your book together. Um, perhaps, Fred, you could go first. Sure. Well, I'm, again, I, what I would call the central and kind of core idea of the book is Donna's Law. And I think contacting your state um, and also your federal uh, legislator and insisting that they consider the passing the bill, um, I think that's the single... Um, I think it's a single proposal that um, could make a big impact and has the greatest chance of being enacted. I mean, we've already seen bipartisan support in Washington. It passed unanimously in one chamber in Utah. Ian mentioned introduction in Tennessee, Alabama, Louisiana. I mean, this is a, a law that I think can pass anywhere and that could make a real difference. Um, thank you. And Ian, do you want to add anything? No, that would be my uh, Mm -hmm. recommendation as well, that, again, two out of every three gun deaths is a suicide, uh, and focusing our our reform efforts on trying to reduce that number should be just uh, a dominant issue for us. Thank you. Um, So now, Ian and Fred, I've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go today, can I ask what you're both working on now? Perhaps, Ian, you can go first, please. Sure. I am uh, working on uh, uh, a new book about the power of resisted temptation. Hmm. That sounds interesting. Um, Sorry, go on. Uh, So it turns out that people who, um, uh, for example, are offered money to quit the gym, they end up uh, going to the gym more often. Uh, that having resisted the temptation, they find it easier to uh, stay on track. That sounds fascinating. Hopefully, once you're done, we can have you back on the show. We can talk more about it. Um, Cool. And Fred, what are you working on now? So I'm not working on a book. I'm working on um, uh, my mental health uh, scholarship and an article on the insanity defense and impact on inheritance. Uh, you mentioned I teach uh, trust and estates as well. So kind of a niche idea, but that's what I'm working on. Hmm. No, um, to me, that sounds really interesting because my doctoral research is on the insanity defense. So perhaps oh. I'll talk more to you about it later. Sure. Um, uh, but uh, Fred Vaz and Ian Ayres, thank you so much for your time today. Um, once again, I've been talking to Ian Ayres and Fred Vaz about their latest book, Weckman of Choice, Fighting Gun Violence While Respecting Gun Rights. I'm Jane Richards. You've been listening to the New Books in Law, 
a channel on the New Books Network.